but unfortunately they won't uh, last that long and not only that, customs would not let me take them into New Zealand. We're not allowed to take vegetation or, unpro or unprocessed food. It's uh, prohibited in our country, but thank you for honouring me and thank you for blessing me. I was speaking with Sister Ruth, my dear wife, uh, earlier this morning as she arrived home from church. She was ministering in our church uh, this morning back in New Zealand. She had a wonderful meeting, she tells me, but she said to be sure and uh, give every member of the church her love. And she said, especially to Sister Rekha. <laughs> so, God bless you. <laughs> and, and, and so, it's my joy and my pleasure to be with you this morning and to share the word of God with you. And there's nothing I like more than to catch up with my former students. And it's, a, it's an honor for me to be with uh, Pastor Comfort because uh, I had the privilege of being one of his teachers uh, when he went through Faith Bible College in New Zealand or well, many years ago now. He wasn't even married then. <laughs> and, and so uh, it's a joy, Pastor Comfort, to see God's hand on you and the fruitfulness uh, of the Word of God that was sown into your life in those years of study being uh, manifest in this local church. And God bless you and your dearly beloved. All right. Now, this morning, you know, I, I, I could, you know, after 51 years in ministry, you know, I, I, I could just, out of the vast reservoir of my understanding of the word, I could just preach a sermon. And, but I don't want to just preach a sermon, if you understand me. I pray that I would bring a word from God that is relevant for today and one that would motivate you all in your pursuit of excellence in your relationship with God. And so I just feel in my heart this morning to speak on the importance of the work of transformation, the transformation of God in each one of your lives. Because when we come to God as believers, and, you know, a lot of people think that all Westerners are Christian. No, 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 no. In my country, active Christianity would be about 5% of our population. And uh, I was in those ranks of unbelievers when I grew up. I did not have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. I did not. I did not come to know the Lord until I met a young lady in Singapore. And that young lady is now my wife. And uh, she is from the opposite side of the world to me. We were, grew up. 12,000 miles apart. She was from England and I was from down under in New Zealand. And we were both uh, in Singapore in the course of our um, occupations at that time. I was in the military with the New Zealand Air Force. My wife was also in the military with the Royal Air Force. And we were both stationed in Changi, which was in a military base in Singapore. And would you believe it, we actually met in the Raffles Hotel at a wedding. And uh, that's when I met her. But why was I attracted to her? Because she was different. She was different. She stood out. 
there was something about her that was intriguing and it attracted me to her. It wasn't her looks, although she's a very striking looking lady, but that wasn't why I was attracted to her. It was her character. She was different. Now, I didn't know why she was different. And uh, it took me some time to find out. But um, when I say some time, only a matter of weeks. But I said to her one day, because, you know, I've always been very keen on sport and I played, played a lot of rugby when I was young. And um, in fact, I, whilst in Singapore there, I played for our station team, then I played played for the Far East Air Force team, and then I played for the combined service team. And we had a big match coming on, playing uh, in the main stadium in Singapore. And I said to my wife, uh, sorry, to Ruth as she was then, she wasn't my wife. I said, would you like to come and watch me play rugby? And she thought about it, and she says, yes, I would like to do that, but on one condition. I said, what is that? You come with me the next day, she said, to church. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> you see, I was never, you know, I always believe in God, but church, church, church was for ladies and men that couldn't make it on the rugby field. You know, that, <laughs> that, that was my concept of Christianity. It was for weak people. But uh, anyway, I went and praise God, praise God. The Holy Spirit quickened the reality of Jesus Christ to me. And I remember saying to myself, if what that man is preaching is correct, then I'm on the wrong side of the fence. And I use that expression because as a boy I grew up on a dairy farm milking cows, you know. And, and so uh, that was the language I used. I'm in the wrong paddock. <laughs> I'm on the wrong side of the fence. And so uh, I made a commitment to cross over. And so uh, praise God for the lady in my life. And just uh, a few days ago, and we had to celebrate it on Skype, talking to one another, we just celebrated our 56th wedding anniversary. And, and so that was just a few days ago. But you see, why did I mention that? The importance of Christian character. I want to take you to a scripture, first of all, in Matthew's Gospel. If you could uh, turn in your Bibles or switch them on and scan them to uh, Matthew. And uh, we're reading in the fifth chapter, Matthew's Gospel and the fifth chapter. Now, Jesus... In this fifth, uh, back in the fourth chapter, we see how that Jesus gathered around him certain disciples to follow him. We'll just pick it up in the seventeenth. Uh, 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 sorry, in the nineteenth verse. No, we'll go back to the seventeenth um, verse. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, 
and I will make you fishers of men. Then immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now that provokes a question. Why did they follow him? Did they follow him because of his message? No. They didn't know his message yet. Did they follow him because of his miracles? No, they hadn't seen them yet. Why did they follow him? Because they saw something in Jesus that attracted him. Just as I saw something in my beloved wife that attracted me to her. You see, it's called character. A character that shines and attracts people. You see, and so they left their occupations. They left their father and they followed Jesus. All right. Then he gathers, after he'd gathered the twelve, he then began to teach and to train them. And he began with the be attitudes. That is, the attitudes we should all have. Those attitudes should be in us. That's why they called the be attitudes. <laughs> you see, that's the character. In, in those be attitudes is the character of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But then, after having taught them on these uh, attributes of character, he then goes on to say, in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, and if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And you also are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a blanket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Two things Jesus said that they were to be. Salt and light. Now, what are, why these two particular examples? You see, well, how are we salt? How can we be salt in the world? Now, what was the main purpose of salt? It was to season. It was to influence. You see? And... Uh, I want to ask you this question. You see, I know that you're all wonderful Christians here this morning. And you've got faces lit up like neon light bulbs with a happy smile as you're rejoicing in fellowship with one another and worshipping God. But what about tomorrow? <laughs> On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> you see, when we're out there earning a living in the offices, the factories, the shops, the schools, the hospitals, wherever it is, the clinics, and so forth. Wherever it is that God has placed us to work. 
what sort of influence are we in that community? Do our people that we work with who know not the Lord, do they see us as unique? Do they see that character in us that attracted the disciples to follow Jesus, that attracted me uh, to endeavor to build a relationship uh, with my now wife? Do you hear what I'm saying? You see, how much influence do we have to those that are around about us? That's how we are salt. We don't have to open our mouth to be salt. No, it's our character as we express the nature and the character of Jesus, considering those around about us, looking not on our own needs but the needs of others first. That's how we are salt. But if the salt loses its ability to season, then it's of no worth. It is to be thrown out and trodden underfoot. The Bible says that. But then the second example was that of light. Light. Now, how are we light? All right, now, light is always symbolical of the revealed word of God. As the psalmist said, your word, O God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my pathway. Now, salt influences, but light confronts. You see, light. Now, how great is our light? Our light is only as strong and powerful according to how much of the word of God is in us. And has brought about the work of transformation of uh, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's how much light we have. Now, when at night time we can go out and we, on a clear night, if we get out of the city and away from the city lights and go out into the countryside and look up at the stars. And what do we see? That beautiful uh, sky filled with the stars but some stars are very very small and not much light others are bigger and brighter and as the bible says you know and i'm just uh, quoting from corinthians as one star differs from another star in glory so also you know uh, is the glory of god worked in us the sons of god will vary. We won't all be resurrected in the same degree of glory. For as one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection. As Pastor was telling us, eight, the number of resurrection, or new beginning, or new life. You see? Now, the question is, on that day of resurrection, there's the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of the stars. And as one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection. How much light will, will we radiate in eternity? It comes back to how much we've allowed the working of God's word, anointed by the Spirit, to transform us. To transform us. Because from glory to glory, we are being transformed all right so salt and light now i want to talk therefore on the importance of being transformed now why do i feel to share this 
what, what, what is the reason? Why do I want to share it? Because of the days and the times that we're living in. We're living in the days of great transformation. Great transformation. But what is being transformed? The world. The world. And I want you to understand the world is being transformed. Transformed into what? Darkness. Gross darkness. For the Bible says in the last days, gross darkness will cover the earth. And so you can see the importance in these days why it is that God's people must be bright, shining lights in the presence of darkness. That is our responsibility. Gross darkness shall cover the earth. Or, using it in more plainer language, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Know ye not that in the last days perilous times will come. Perilous times will come. Why? Because gr gross darkness shall cover the earth. And men are lovers of darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And the greater the darkness, the greater the evil that will be manifest on this earth. You see, the world is being transformed. Now, Pastor mentioned that I've had the privilege of living on this earth for 78 years. And I want to use an illustration. And it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a shocking illustration, but it's one of reality. It's what's happening in our world. For those of you that watch the news, you will have seen on the news just in the last few weeks that the President of the United States of America has changed the United States of America into the United Gay States of America in passing a law, a national law, allowing same-sex marriages and giving same-sex marriage couples, lesbians and homosexuals, the right to adopt children and raise children, you see, violating the God-given family that God made man and woman for. Thus, you know, transforming our understanding of marriage. Because marriage, as we understand it from a biblical point of view, is that God made man, then said it's not good that man should dwell alone, and then made woman. And what was the purpose of the woman? The woman was made to help the man, not help him darn his socks and wash his shirts and cook his food. No, she was to help him be express his love. Because why was it not good that man should dwell alone? Because there was nobody for him to love. So love to be seen must be love expressed. So God put, said it's not good that man would dwell alone. He makes a, a woman to help the man. Help the man what? Express his love. She's to submit to the man. Submit to his what? His love. Not his dictatorship. His love. You understand me? But anyway, that's another subject. And I don't want to you know, pursue that. All I'm saying is... God's definition of marriage was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. All right? But Adam and Eve, it was to be a man and a woman. You see, I want you to see. Now, 
Laws are being changed. Now, one of the signs of the last days, and Daniel saw this, Daniel the prophet, way back in the Old Testament, he saw this in his prophetic vision of the future. And in the seventh chapter of Daniel, one of the signs of the spirit of Antichrist was this. He will seek to change times and laws. He will seek to change times and laws. That is happening before our very eyes today. Laws are being changed so that that which was once criminal and evil may be now acceptable and practice in society. You see, that is what the spirit of Antichrist is doing as society is being transformed in these days in which we live. Now, I can turn the clock back just 20 years ago in my country. And uh, a homosexual act was, according to the law of our land, a criminal act. And uh, if a homosexual person was caught, or homosexual persons were caught in the act, they could be prosecuted and they could be jailed. It was a criminal offence. Mind you, they stopped enforcing that law probably 50 years ago. But nevertheless, the law was there. The homosexual was the criminal. And the Christian was the hero. But then a work of transformation began. You see, laws don't change overnight. Darkness doesn't just all of a sudden, there it is. Uh, No, you go out in the twilight of the evening, and as that sun goes down over the western horizon, slowly by slowly, the light dissipates. And little by little, it gets darker and darker and darker until we get to the darkest hour of the night. Isn't that true? The same with the transformation of this world. It doesn't happen overnight. It's little by little. And so I want to just quote five steps of transformation that the world followed. All right, and I'm using this uh, same-sex marriage and, the, and, and homosexuality as an example, because even Jesus warned us that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be to the coming of the Son of Man. And we're living in the days that we'll see very soon, I believe, the coming of the Lord. But he says in those days it'll be as it was in the days of Noah. That's why I'm using this as an example to show you the work of transformation in the world. How did it begin? It began, first of all, by step one. Tolerated. Society was asked to tolerate homosexuality. Tolerate it. You don't have to agree with it. Just tolerate it. That's what society was asked to do. In other words, although it was a criminal offence, We won't impose the law because we were asked to just tolerate it. Oh, yes, we know it goes on, but tolerate it. 
I was in Singapore a few weeks ago. Well, I was there just a few days ago. But, but, but a few weeks ago when I was in Singapore, the Christians had a rally in the National Stadium. It was a prayer rally. 51,000 Christians filled the Singapore Stadium. And the Prime Minister of Singapore addressed. He's not Christian or he doesn't claim to be Christian. But he attended. And he addressed this point because America had just passed the law ordaining, allow, allowing or permitting the ordaining of same-sex marriages. And he addressed the Christians and he said as long as he is Prime Minister of Singapore, he would not allow such a law to be passed in Singapore. He says, for our, but he said, nevertheless, he said, the laws of Singapore, homosexuality is a criminal offense. But he says, in these days in which we live, we shall not enforce that law. You see, what was he asking Singapore to do? Tolerate it. Tolerate it. You see, tolerate it. And then after a year or two, after a few more years of asking society to tolerate it, that step two took place. We were asked to accept it. Accept it. And how I just speak of my country, we had a, a woman prime minister at the time, and she passed what we call the Homosexual Law Reform Bill, decriminalizing homosexuality. In other words, society was asked now to accept it as a way of life in our society. First of all, tolerate it. Secondly, accept it. And then, uh, after having coerced society to accept it, then uh, step three took place. Celebrate it. Celebrate it. And so we saw the emergence of these gay parades and gay festivals and, 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 and gay parties and gay hotels and gay bars and all that sort of thing as they celebrated their liberation, as they called it. You see, they celebrated it. And every year in the city of Auckland, which is the largest city in New Zealand, they have what they call the Hero Parade. And that's what they call themselves, heroes. Heroes. And it's the big hero thing. As they celebrate, and it's a shocking thing. I've never ever gone there live to witness it, but I've seen clips of it uh, on the news on television. And, uh, you know, you, you, you would think you were already in hell when you look at it of what goes on in those, those, those parades as they celebrate uh, their liberty and liberation. You see? That is the third step. And then uh, we then had, little by little, as the years go by, the fourth law comes in, the fourth step. Legalize it. Legalize it. Now, by legalizing it and passing the law to allow same-sex marriages... And I want you to understand, this is a decree from United Nations. They are behind this. I've just to remind you that the President Obama has just been down uh, to Kenya and also to Ethiopia 
And what was the main thing on his agenda? To coerce those governments into accepting homosexuality. It's a United Nations agenda to bring that right across the whole world. To bring it across the whole world. You see? And so, to, and, 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 and legalize it everywhere. Now, the moment that it's legal, every time they have a hero parade or a big celebration, they insist that the mayor of the city or, and a government representative attend those festivals. If a government member doesn't attend it or the mayor doesn't attend we're being discriminated against, they say. You follow it. And so by legalising a member of government has to attend those parades. The mayor has to attend it. Why? Because uh, it's uh, their legal responsibility. The gays now have legal right to demand that they attend their celebrations. And then, finally, the fifth step. Extol it. Extol it. What does that mean? Lift it as a position of preeminence in society. And anybody that speaks against it can be prosecuted and jailed. Churches in the United States, pastors are being jailed for speaking against it. Churches are being closed. People are being uh, excommunicated out of the armed forces. Being prosecuted for refusing to conduct uh, a gay marriage. Be refusing, being fined $135,000 for refusing to bake a cake for a lesbian couple. And they're being prosecuted and jailed. They call it hate speech. I mean, the world can say what it likes against the church, but if the church speaks against homosexuality, that's hate speech. It's a criminal offence. So what have we seen now? 30 years ago, perhaps, the criminal was the homosexual, the Christian was the hero. Today, the homosexual is the hero and the Christian is the criminal. You see, society is being transformed into darkness. It's been transformed. All right. And we're called to be light. And the greater the darkness, the brighter should be your light. But how bright is our light? We can't stop what the world is doing. But we can respond to what Christ is requiring of us. To be salt and light in the community. Okay. So I want to take those five steps and I want to apply them now to Christianity, to Christians. But before I do, I'd like you to turn your Bible to John chapter 2. Can we just go there for a moment? John chapter 2. And I'm reading from the first verse, John chapter 2. Now, this is a record of the first miracle that Jesus performed as he began his ministry. All right, we pick it up in the first verse of chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. Now, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. All right, let's just pause there for a moment. Everything in the Bible is written for importance. Now, why didn't he just say, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. 
Why doesn't it just tell us that? Why does it say on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee? Why not just say, you know, there was a wedding taking place in Cana of Galilee? No. Why, why not just say that? It says on the third day there was a wedding. Now, I want you to understand from Scripture that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years was as a day in the sight of the Lord. This wedding took place on the third day. Just bear that in mind. All right. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Why is this concern of yours that they've run out of wine? What has that got to do with me? It was a provocative question. Now, the way it is written in the you know, the English Bible, it doesn't sound very ethical. Nice way for a son to refer to his mother, woman. <laughs> but go back into the Greek. And what he was saying is, really, why are you concerned, bringing that concern to me? You see? And his next statement, for my hour has not yet come. What hour? The hour of Jesus' wedding that will take place on the third day. That is, the church, at the end of the church age, which is to be 2,000 years approximately. And Jesus is soon to come back for his bride. And I quote to you, Revelation chapter 19, with the angel of the Lord says unto John, Behold, I will show you the Lamb's wife, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now, a lot of people are asking, what day will he come? I don't know. And we're not meant to know. Because the coming of Jesus for his bride is not a calendar date. You understand? It's not a calendar date. It's a relational date. What do I mean by a relational date? Because if you look carefully there at that scripture in Revelation 19... For the marriage of the Lamb has come, for the bride has made herself ready. When will Jesus come? When the bride has made herself ready. You see, God didn't appoint a day. He appointed an event. When the bride is ready, and of course you've got to understand a Jewish wedding, the father says to his son, all right, now go get your bride. Go get her. You see? And Jesus will leave his father's throne and bring his throne to this earth. Marry his bride. And Jesus and his bride, his consort queen, will rule and reign this earth for the duration of a thousand years. That is the wedding Jesus was concerned about. Woman, he said, what is your concern about no wine at this wedding? What has that got to do with me? My hour, that is my wedding, the time of my wedding, has not yet come. You see, but one of the signs 
prior to the coming of Jesus for his bride, the church. In general terms, there's always the exception of the rule. God always has a remnant, I understand that. But to a large degree, the church will have run out of wine. It's run out of wine. You see, now, I've had the privilege, as was mentioned earlier, of ministering for 51 years. I've seen the wine gradually, slowly by slowly, dissipate from among the ranks of Christendom. The hunger for the Word of God is nowhere near as astute and, and keen as it was 50 years ago. The quality of the Word of God in most churches, I'm speaking in general and primarily to the Western world, you see, the wine has run out. There isn't the hunger for the Word of God that there was today. Now, if I can say anything, the music ministry has hijacked the church. People are more concerned about the quality of the music, the quality of the singing, the quality of the worship than they are about the Word of God. Now, please, I'm just speaking in general terms. No way am I bringing any indictment upon you people. You see? And many of the churches through what they call seeker-friendly have turned their churches into almost, you can't tell the difference between the church and the nightclub. The church is in darkness except for the lights on the stage and the strobe lights are going and the big glass crystal ball is turning around. Strobe lights going everywhere. Mist coming off of a dry eye machine uh, all across the platform. Girls uh, dancing in, uh, you know, what it would be a shame for a man to look at. You understand? And, and this is what is going on. And the church walls are all painted black. And the curtains are all drawn. It's in darkness. You see? That's fulfilling the scripture. Men are lovers of darkness. Because their deeds are evil. You see? I want us to realize the wine has run out. But there's always a remnant that has the wine. Hence the parable that runs parallel to that. The five wise and the five foolish virgins. Some of the church will have wine. The rest of it will have run out. You see? And in that illustration, those that had run out of wine, when the, when the shout went, Behold, the bridegroom comes. They awoke. And they trimmed their lamps. But the wise one, had wine. Well, they had oil, I should say. They had oil. Speaking again, just in wine and oil, similar there, a revelation of the anointed word of God. But the five foolish had run out. You see? And they asked the five wise, give us of your oil. And they said, no, 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 in case it's not enough for you and us. Go buy for yourself. You see, you can't ride into that wedding feast on somebody else's invitation, on somebody else's anointing. You can't get there hanging on to mum's sari or daddy's coattails. You can't. You've got to have your own. You've got, see, you've got to buy it. There's a cost. A cost in procuring the anointing. Not a cost for salvation. The five foolish virgins, you know, didn't lose their salvation. They were still saved, but they were denied the wedding. All right, now then... Jesus went on to say, he says to, his, to the servant, well, the Mary said, 
to the servants, whatever Jesus says unto you, whatever he says unto you, do it. So Jesus then took control. And there were six water pots there. And in Bible numerics, I want you to understand, six is always the number of man. Now, there were six water pots there. And they were water pots, as it says. Go back to John chapter 2. And it says there, now there were, in verse 6, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification. What was the purpose of those water pots? To contain the water of purification. What is the water of purification? It's the word of God. In typology. The word of God. I want you to see the vessels. Six water pots made of stone. And I want you to understand, make, consider yourself now one of those six water pots. And Jesus said, fill those water pots to the brim. And they could hold 20 to 30 gallons each. It's a lot of wine, wasn't it? Either they were heavy drinkers or there was a huge banquet. <laughs> a lot of people at that wedding. Because six water pots, just count, counting 20 gallons, being conservative, that's 120 gallons of wine. I've been to many weddings in my life. I've never, ever seen that quantity of wine at a wedding. Now, my point is this. You see, put yourself as one of those water pots. And God wants to fill you with the water of his word. To purify you. See, those water pots were water pots for the custom of purification. And that's what God desires, that we be purified. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. That's why James writes, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded, that we might ascend to the hill of the Lord, be purified, that he is transformed into holiness. All right, so fill them with water. And then when they were full, he said to the servants, draw out now and take it to the master of ceremonies. So they drew it out. And when the master of ceremonies had tasted that wine. He said, mm. usually at a wedding, they give the best wine first. And when people are half-sozzled, then they give the cheap wine. But he said, you've kept the best wine until last. So beautiful and pure was that wine. Now then, what happened? You see, in that water pot, in that vessel, a work of transformation took place turning the water of the word of God into the beautiful tasting wine of the spirit. You see, that is the work God wants to do in each one of our lives. And I want to take those five steps of transformation. All right? The first step, tolerate it. Now, how did we come to God? Where did we come from? I know where I came from. I came from the gutter of sin. I did. I was a sinner, and all of us were. Now, I realize there are degrees of sinner, but all of us are born in sin. Okay? David said that. He said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he wasn't in any way inferring that his mother had had a, a naughty night out. That's not what he was saying when he said, in sin did my mother conceive me. No, what was he meaning? 
because she was a sinner. Therefore, he was conceived in sin. Okay? And, and so what I want us to realize is that we're all born in sin. How did we come to the Lord? Colossians tells us, you who are enemies of God by wicked works in your mind. You see, when we came to the Lord, we were enemies of God. We were in darkness. And God translated us out of darkness and placed us into marvelous light. But we came to him as enemies. And so the moment we're born again, I want you to realize we bring all our baggage with us. I think I shared this to the students when I was here last time teaching. You see, is that because I wasn't always a Christian, I didn't come to really accept the Lord until I met my dear beloved. What was I? I was a drinking, smoking, cursing sinner. And then I accepted my, the Lord as my personal saviour. Now what was I? I was a drinking, smoking, cursing Christian. You see? Justified, but not yet sanctified. And so the work of transformation begins the moment we receive Jesus as our saviour. Now, what work of transformation is it? We're called to a conformity to the image of Christ. So step one, tolerate it. See, what is God doing? He loves us. He wants to bring that work of transformation. That is why all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. As I was saying to the young people last night, all things is not just necessarily the good things that we deem good. All things, everything God permits to happen to us. And nothing can happen to us except God permit it. I'm not saying he ordains it, but he permits it. The story of Job is a classic example. So step one, tolerate it. And I'll give an example. The apostle Paul, he had a thorn in the flesh. What was that thorn? Some people say it was a disease. Well, I, I don't take that view. Another way of looking at it is, if we go back to the law of first mention, where do we see that term, thorn in the flesh, ever, moved, ever used in scripture? It was when the Israelites came out of Egypt and they were going into the promised land. And God said, when you cross over Jordan into the promised land, destroy every man, every woman, every child, every cattle beast and what have you. If you don't, there'll be thorns in your flesh. So from that, a thorn in the flesh to me is a person. And God had put somebody beside Paul that irritated him. And that's true. Why? What was the purpose? Now, Paul didn't like it. So he cried unto God, Lord, remove the thorn out of my side. But what did God say? No, Paul, you tolerate it. <laughs> my grace is sufficient for you. You tolerate it. And God's got a way of putting somebody beside us. What's the purpose of it? To allow us to overcome offences. To allow us to be victorious over irritants. I mean, God can put somebody beside you to be a thorn in the flesh. It could be your wife. Or your husband. Or your parents. Or the person, your boss at work. See? But it's in the economy of God. Why? To produce character in us. And so three times Paul prayed for that thorn to be removed. Three times God said, no, Paul, no, you tolerate it. You tolerate it. You see, that's what God is doing. See, he's working in us. 
the work of transformation, changing. And how does he do it? He puts the word of God into us. He puts the word of God into us. And then he tests that word through trials. See, Peter says, you know, we have been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible that is reserved in heaven for us. But he said, if needs be, he said, in this hope we rejoice. That is the hope of the inheritance re reserved in heaven for us. But if needs be, many of you suffer grievous trials. If needs be. And God knows what needs to take place in our life. And often, if needs be, we endure grievous trials. Why? So that the genuineness of your faith may be proven. Nothing is going to hop make its way into the bride of Christ, into that relationship with the Lord that is coming that has not been put to the test and proven. You see? That the genuineness of your faith. And that is why James writes, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why do you have to count it joyful? Because at the time of the trial, it doesn't seem to be joyful. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he has been proven, he shall receive the crown of life. You understand me? God puts us to the test. Why? He wants to bring about that work of transformation. Right, the second step. Acceptance. Learn to accept what God does in your life. And, you know, if I had the time, we'd do an exegesis of Hebrews chapter 12, the divine chastening of the Lord. Faint not when you are rebuked of him, nor despise the chastening of the Lord. Accept it. Why? Because, uh, you know, no chastening at the time seems to be joyful. It really is joyful. It just doesn't seem to be at the time. How does it seem? Grievous. But nevertheless, it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness in each one of us who are trained by it. Because God is transforming us. He's doing a work in us. All right. So, first of all, tolerate it. Accept it. And then celebrate it. Celebrate it. How do you celebrate trials and tribulations? How do you celebrate persecution? How do you celebrate tribulation? How do you celebrate infirmities? How do you celebrate the dealings of God and divine chastisement? Only by having a right attitude. It's not what you go through. It's the attitude in which you go through it with. How you come out of it. That is why the Apostle Paul was able to sincerely preach from his heart such rhetoric as, I rejoice in tribulation. I delight in persecution. I take pleasure in my infirmities. How many of us talk like that? No, no, no. We don't. Paul did. Why? Because he saw the value of these experiences to bring about that work of transformation in his life. You see? Step one, tolerate it, accept it, and then celebrate what God is doing. See the positive. All things work together for good to them that love God. And then we go on to the next. Legalize it. How do we do that? We accept God's word. As the psalmist says, I delight in the law of the Lord my God. I delight in the law of the Lord my God. You see, what is it that controls your life? Let me ask you this now, this morning. What is it that controls your life? Is it the word of God? Or is it finance? Is it prestige? 
Is it pride? Is it acceptability of society? You see, what is it that controls our life? Is it the Word of God? I can't answer that question. I have a difficult job answering it for myself. How is my life governed by the Word of God? Does this Word have legal right in my life? Yes, it does. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then finally, extol it. Extol it. What does that mean? There is coming a day of judgment when the criminal will be sorted from the hearer. And I trust on that day when we stand before the Lord on judgment day and have to give an account of the deeds done in our body and the words spoken of our mouth that we hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Why? Because uh, the, 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 uh, the work of transformation is being completed uh, in each of our lives. So the world is being transformed into darkness. But I want you to understand God is transforming his people from darkness to marvelous light. And how much light depends on how much of the word of God God can get into you. Can I have that bottle of water, please? Thank you. Don't take the lid off. Just leave it like that. Right. Now you can all see that bottle is full of water. Now then, I don't have the ability <laughs> to just wave my hand over this bottle and turn it into wine, as Jesus did. I can't do that. I can't do that. No, but I would like to fill this bottle with wine. Now, for me to fill that bottle with wine, what must I first do? Empty it. You pick up my point. The reason why the work of transformation is not taking place in many of God's people, they are not empty vessels. See, those water pots had to be empty. They had to be empty. The vessel has to be empty. You see, I know sometimes we can flock to the altar for prayer. Lord, take this sin out of my life. Lord, uh, take this ungodly relationship out of my life. Lord, uh, take away my lying tongue. Lord, uh, take away my sinful heart. No, don't pray like that. God's not in the taking business. He's not. God is not a taker. God is a giver. He's a giver. God doesn't take sin off any anybody. What does he do? He reveals his word to us and says, you put it away. You see, Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but yet Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself, not as God. He didn't empty himself of his divine deity, no. He emptied himself of what? Fulfilling the self-will. The self-will. See, that's the hardest thing for God to 
empty yourself, or at least for us to empty ourselves, the self-will. What do I want? What do I want in life? What do I value? Where am I going? <clears throat> Where God is there for me. Lord, I'm sick. Come, Lord, heal me. Lord, I have a problem. Come, Lord, meet my need. Solve my problem, Lord. Provide my need. Come, Lord. And our attitude to God is we are the master. He is our servant. That when we have a, have a need, we beckon him. Come, Lord, meet my needs. You see, because I want you to see the vessel is full of self. And it's got to be emptied. You see, the Bible says we're to put on the new man. We're to put on the new man. But you can't put on the new man until first you put off the old man. So that's why that procedure. Put ye off the old man and put on the new. You see, we can't put on the new till we put, on the, put off the old. You see, we cannot be filled with the water of God's word if the vessel is filled with something else. And I want you to see the importance in humility of emptying yourself. Now, only you can do it. And so, what is it that we've got to empty ourselves of? Anything that hinders that work of transformation from taking place in your life, that you might be the light in this darkened world of, of gross immorality that's getting worse and worse. You might be the light that others might see and taste and know the goodness of God because of your testimony. You see, unbelievers out there in darkness, engrossed in the wickedness of sin, you are their hope. I mean, Jesus is their hope, but how is he going to come to them? Through you. As we are salt and light in the community. I'd like you to stand with me as we close this morning. Can you do that? Please stand. I'd like you to lift one hand, your right hand to the Lord, and put your left hand on your chest. And I'm going to pray for you as a church. And as I pray, I want you to just muse on the words of the psalmist when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart, I pray, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Why do I want us to pray like that this morning? So that as we stand before God, we make sure that our vessels, our vessels are pots of purification. That anything that hinders that work of purification, of transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, is absolutely eradicated from our lives. But God isn't going to take it off you. We have to put it away. We have to put it away. But what I want us to do this morning, as I pray, just muse on those words of the psalmist. Search me, O God, for he knows us better than we know ourselves. Search me, O God, and know my heart, I pray, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Father, as we stand before you this morning, O God, we are vessels. And Lord, you said in a master's house there are many vessels, some of gold and silver, others of stone and wood. 
But if a man cleanses himself, he will be a vessel of honor. Lord, in a, in a, in a great house there are vessels of honor and there are vessels of dishonor. But if a man cleanses himself, he will be a vessel of honor for whom the master can work. Oh, Father, as you're moving across us as an assembly this morning, you're bringing revelation to our spirit. Lord, you're searching the heart. And as you're putting your finger on things such as uncontrolled anger, resentment, jealousy, covetousness, pride, anger, Oh, so many of these things that endeavor to ensnare us. Lord, we release them this morning. Let us be emancipated from them. Oh, God, I pray, let our vessels be emptied from any area of self that would hinder that work of transformation, of bringing us into a conformity to your dear Son so that he might have a vast family of many sons whom he may one day come and take as his bride to rule and reign with him in the economy of his kingdom. Lord, that is our desire. But Lord, for that work of transformation to take place, we know your word must be deposited within us. And Lord, we can only <clears throat> take as much as that word as our vessels are empty. Lord, I pray. Let us empty ourselves. Empty ourselves of any essence of self. And Lord, may we bow our knee to your sovereign lordship and say, have your way in me, O God. Mold me. Make me. Lord, that I be the vessel you'd have me to be. That that work of transformation, of changing, the word that has gone into us through the anointing of your Holy Spirit to be the wine and the joy that will give us the strength to endure, to be part of that coming wedding. Have your way in among your people. And Lord, I pray that this message, Lord, will lodge in our hearts this morning. That it won't just go in one ear and out the other as we get on with life tomorrow. But Lord, may we muse on it and meditate on it. Asking ourselves, what sort of a man am I? How bright is my light? How influential is my salt? Use me, O oh God, to be a beacon that others may come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh God, let this vision take a hold of this church, I pray. Multiply it, not for numbers' sake, but Lord, for your kingdom's sake. Lord, let your blessing be upon every member. Have your way in each one of their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated.